0: The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. I'm not Tim, as you can tell. Um, I look something more like a maybe like a garden gnome to you. Compared to Tim, short with the big beard. Um, my name is Patrick. Uh, my family is some spread out somewhere around this building. We're the Rowe family. Um, kids, by the way, can can go to their classes uh, if they're going to one of the classes. Um, and uh, I'm here. Uh, Tim's away uh, doing some ministry um, this morning, uh, teaching. And so I'm here in his place hoping to just be faithful to you all, faithful to the word. And uh, just, just by way of introduction, really quickly, uh, I am coming uh, from a church in Houston. Uh, my family just moved here a few months ago. And uh, we were sent here by our church that we planted uh, eight years ago. And, uh, and that is an Acts 29 church. And this church also is part of the Acts 29 Church Planting Network. So that's how I knew this church, knew Tim, uh, was connected. And so that's how we ended up here. And I'm really grateful to be here. We've been really blessed by being a part of the church, by being part of the family uh, these last few months. So thanks for welcoming us. Uh, we're going to continue in Galatians this morning. Uh, Tim started us off uh, by going through the first chapter, taking the last two weeks to go to the first uh, chapter of Galatians and Paul introducing who he is, uh, reminding the Galatians of uh, the gospel that was preached to them in the very beginning. And I'll I'll give a bit of a a recap of that. But we're going to continue into the second chapter and just the first 14 verses. So if you've got your Bible with you and you want to get that text ready to go, we'll be in Galatians chapter 2. So Tim's led us up to this point covering the first chapter. And uh, Lord willing, we'll make it through those first 14 verses of the second one. Uh, In the first five verses of Galatians, what Paul is attempting to do, as Tim taught us, is establish gospel truth. This entire letter from Paul to the Christians who are in Galatia, uh, who were mostly Gentile, um, was to reestablish the truth of the gospel that had been proclaimed to them by Paul and his companions uh, when they first heard. And so uh, they're in danger of forgetting some really necessary components of what it was that saved them. And Paul wasn't okay with that. So, in the first five, five verses, he's establishing or reestablishing some gospel truth, namely that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah. Uh, Christ was the Greek word, Hebrew, the Messiah uh, uh, word, the, the word Messiah. It just means the one, that promised one, that Savior that they had been waiting on. And he wanted to remind them that Jesus is the Christ. He also wanted to remind them that Jesus had been raised from the dead by God the Father. So he mentions Jesus raised from the dead. And he also reminds them that Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. Then in verses 6-10, through he reminds them of the importance of pure gospel truth. Pure gospel truth. Not just any gospel truth, not just any truth that anyone would call gospel good news, but the gospel that was proclaimed to them and that it must be kept pure. Otherwise, it's no gospel at all. Amen? If you distort, if you add to, take away from the gospel, it's no longer the gospel. It's not just a different version. It's no longer good news. And he wanted them to remind them of that. In fact... He said, if we abandon or distort the gospel, we are, des- we are deserting God himself. Do you remember Tim teaching that? I'm, I'm astonished that you so quickly deserted the one who called you. So distorting and abandoning the truth of the gospel, the pure truth of the gospel, is not just deserting the gospel, it's deserting God himself. And he also said that Paul said that anyone who preaches a different gospel is an enemy of God and an enemy of the church. Let him be accursed. Let him be accursed, he said twice. And he was reminding them in his let him be accursed, let him be accursed, that they had already been told that before. Remember, as we have said before, so now we say again, let him be accursed, let him be accursed. Not playing around with the purity of the gospel. It has to be Preserved. Verses eleven through twenty-four. The gospel is God's. It is God's gospel. It's not man's gospel. Paul didn't receive it from men, he received it from God Himself. It was through a miraculous revelation that Paul had received the gospel, not from the teachings of mere human beings, not even from the teachings of the apostles. Remember, it was three years after Paul was saved, after he received this revelation from Jesus, that he ever even met Peter or any other apostle. The gospel is God's. When Jesus appeared to Paul and the gospel was revealed to him, he spent three years in Arabia and Damascus preaching, making disciples. Then three years after the revelation, Paul finally met Peter, James, the Lord's brother, in Jerusalem, So we know that the gospel he was preaching in Arabia and Damascus was not taught to him by the apostles, but by Jesus himself. So this leads us up here to chapter 2, where Paul is going to expound on his history with the other apostles and his own efforts to maintain the purity of the gospel for the Gentiles. So if you would... Uh, Just follow along with me. I'm going to read uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. Uh, I'll read it out loud if you want to follow along. Um, And then I'm going to just ask the Lord for help. Um, I find that I'm a very needy person and very dependent on the Lord, especially in a moment where you're trying to proclaim God's truth to his people. Uh, What a task. So we'll stop after we've read this and just ask the Lord to do what only he can do. So here's Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised. what they were makes no difference to me. God, knows shows, God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, the Jews, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles, And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you've delivered it to us miraculously, that we have your word written on pages preserved for us, that the truth of who you are And what your will is for us, for humanity, has been revealed to us clearly. Everything that we need for life and godliness delivered to us. Thank you for your word. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit who enables us and empowers us to understand your word, to proclaim it faithfully, to hear it faithfully, to embrace it and obey it faithfully. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit, we call on you now and we ask that you would do what only you can do. That you would cause this to be a time when your church is built up and our faith in what Christ has accomplished for us and who we are, a new creation, new identity founded upon Christ and not on our own righteousness. We love you, God. We depend on you. We are hopeful about what you will teach us this morning. And we trust you with all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so in these verses, Paul is giving the Galatians some church history. Some church history, his history even with the apostles. But it's not just for the sake of knowing the history. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of a nerd about this topic because I was a history major in college Um, And so you're going, oh, so you were a history teacher. No, it was pointless. I actually, when I was choosing my degree, I was just scanning all the different degrees. And basically, I majored in what will get me out of college the fastest. That was what I majored in. That just happened to be history. I actually kind of fell in love with it. I, I love history. I love knowing where we've been. Um, but not just for the sake of knowing it, right? Anybody who cares anything about history will tell you, you don't want to know the history just for the sake of knowing it, so that you can win a trivia game, right? You want to know it so that you know where you've been. What kind of errors have we made before? What kind of successes have we had before? So that we can avoid the errors, and we can repeat the successes and build on those successes, right? This is the point of history. It's no different here. Paul is proclaiming his history with the apostles because he's building a case for the purity of the gospel. He's giving history about his interaction with Peter and the other apostles so that we can see the errors from the past, we can build on the successes, and we can be heading in a place that pleases the Lord. That's good for the church. So we're learning some church history here from Paul, sharing this history as a means of building this case For their sake, that they would be confident of what the gospel is, be reminded of it, and be uh, encouraged, built up, and feel secure in their knowledge of the gospel. So here's what I want to ask of all of us this morning as we come to these verses, that we don't just come to these verses because they're not loaded with all kinds of new doctrinal points. This this first 14 verses of Galatians 2, Paul isn't saying, Now let me remind you of this theological point. Let me remind you of these doctrinal tenets. We're not going to seminary here. We're getting a history lesson. Now it's loaded with good doctrine. But we don't want to come to these verses as historians, just as theologians, although we always are. We always want to know what the Word of God says. But we need to come. We're meant to come. Paul intended for these verses to be received by us as disciples. As disciples. Not just historians and theologians, but as disciples. What can we learn? How can we be corrected? How can we be warned? How can we be shaped by the pure gospel as disciples of Christ? So just encouraging that attitude that we would all be learners here from what Paul is sharing with them. Because we're not much different from them, to be honest. So he begins this chapter by saying, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. He's building of course on the history he's already shared that three years after Jesus saved him, he went down to Jerusalem and he had a meeting With Peter, and he saw James, the Lord's brother, there, who had become uh, a pillar, he says, in the church in Jerusalem. He had this brief time with them. If we go all the way back to Acts chapter 9, we see that he was with them just for a short time. And it's not entirely clear here uh, if he meant 14 years after his conversion or 14 years after his, meet, his first time in Jerusalem. But in either case, it had been 14 years or 17 years. It had been a long time, right? A lot of ministry had happened, a lot of uh, interaction with Jews, Gentiles. He had suffered a lot. He'd seen a lot of people saved. So a lot of church history happened there between these two meetings. He probably meant 14 years since his last trip to Jerusalem. We'll take it at that because that's the best kind of interpretation we have. So that first trip to Jerusalem, he mentions in Galatians 1:18, probably refers to Acts chapter 9, verses 26 through 29. You could read it sometime and just kind of connect the dots. And it's important to notice here that Paul had already been taking the Gentile, the the gospel to the Gentiles for three or four years, maybe. Maybe even up to four years before Peter had a vision in Acts chapter 10 where God was proclaiming to him, you remember when the sheet descended down as Peter's on the rooftop and God says to him with this blanket filled with pork and, I don't know, catfish and shrimp and whatever was in it, all these unclean foods to the Jews, and he's saying, take, kill, and eat. That all happened in Acts chapter 10. And God was saying, take, The gospel to the Gentiles, it's for them too. Your life is meant to be alongside the Gentiles as I'm bringing them into the kingdom. Don't keep them out. Don't shut them out. Acts chapter 10. It was in Acts chapter 9, Paul had a meeting with them three years after he had already been traveling around Damascus and Arabia, preaching the gospel, making disciples. That's very important to notice. Why is that so important to notice? Here's why I think. Because that tells us God was already doing a powerful work through Paul to bring the Gentiles into the kingdom basically in secret outside of Israel before anyone, long before anyone in Israel even thought that that was a possibility. Do you feel that? that all these Jewish Christians in Israel thought, well, God is saving us, and he's saving us through Christ, but the Gentiles are still outsiders. The gospel's not going to them. The gift of the Holy Spirit is not being given to them. Meanwhile, for three or four years, Paul's out here in Arabia preaching the gospel, and Gentiles are all getting saved, but nobody else knows. God's doing this all basically in secret. And I don't know why God does these things this way, but I love the reveal I love how God reveals this work he's already been doing and and maybe it's the way he does that to us many times where all of a sudden we realize we're caught up in something God was already doing and God just wants us to know it wasn't us. It didn't depend on us. He was already doing it. Uh, I'm often uh, reminded of Paul going to Corinth and he was overwhelmed at the task that was ahead of him and the Lord spoke to him in in a private moment. He said, don't worry, I've already got people in the city that you don't know about. People? Paul might have thought, P- I'm the one who takes the gospel and, and the people become your people because they receive the gospel from me. But you're saying before I ever got here, you had people here. Right? It didn't depend on Paul. It, didn't re- it doesn't depend on us. It didn't depend on any person. God is doing His work, sometimes even secretly to us, Because we need to know that it doesn't depend on us. So before we start reading about uh, anyone's failures, namely Peter's failures, we're going to get there and we're going to examine that. But before we start reading about anyone's failures, um, I want to ask if you would allow the timeline of what's happening here, the history that Paul is teaching, allow the timeline... The fact that God was doing a a mighty and a powerful work to save Gentiles for years before Peter ever even heard, received a vision, was convinced that Gentiles could be saved. Allow that timeline to just soften your heart towards the struggle that the Jews had to fully accept the doctrine of grace. To just soften your heart. For any Jew not named Paul... A Gentile was always an outsider, right? They were always an outsider, and thousands of years of theology and tradition are hard to part with. I know in my lifetime there are things that I was just—I was just raised that way. I was taught to sing like that, or pray like that, or study like that, or just be a friend like this, and and then I see the Bible contradicting me, and it's hard for me to let go of what I've learned, what I've been taught in order to step into what God is revealing. So let's have some compassion for them. Here in Galatians 2, we see that after 14 years, it was still of utmost importance to Paul to be on this fierce, dedicated mission to convince not only the Gentiles, but also the Jews, that the gospel is an invitation to all mankind. All mankind... To come to Christ, receive eternal life by grace through faith, not by works of the Jewish law. Fourteen years later, Paul is still on this mission and he counts it a worthy mission. He's devoted to this mission because the purity of the gospel is at stake. The purity of the gospel. I'm sort of um, belaboring this point on purpose. The timeline... Uh, the difficulty of accepting what Paul was teaching, how long it took. It was a lifetime of Paul preaching and pleading and reminding them in order for them to accept. And even, I'm sure, long after Paul was dead and gone, there were still Jews traveling around trying to circumcise Gentiles. I'm positive of it. So I'm belaboring this point because I think it's too easy to read these next several verses and fall into what we're going to call this morning the superiority trap the superiority trap because uh, it's kind of easy to sit here 2,000 years later reading this history about Jews and Gentiles and the conflict they had over the purity of the gospel and to remember how hard it was how new it was even after 14 years this is still new for them Still new. Here we are 2,000 years later. And it's just taken different forms, different shapes. But the same struggle in our hearts to accept the doctrine of grace fully and completely, without any kind of add-ons, without removing any aspects, without adding our traditions and trying to form people in our own image, the same struggle is happening in our hearts. So we can't come to this history lesson and fall into the trap of superiority I know that I've asked myself before reading this kind of history and the struggle that's just ongoing throughout the whole New Testament how could the Galatians fall into such an obvious heresy how could they, how could they let this happen where were their leaders even such an obvious heresy well then of course the rebuttal is obvious to who obvious to who a 21st century Christian? Well, of course it should be obvious to us. We've got all their letters, right? We have all of these letters that they were written as they were defending the purity of the gospel and combating this legalism and this conformity to Judaism as a necessity for Christianity. We've got all of this history preserved for us by God. Of course it should be obvious to us, and yet sometimes, still not, still not obvious to us. So my question sometimes of how could they, these Gentile believers, fall into this legalism? Well, how do I? How do I still do it? How could those Jews put such a legalistic burden on the Gentiles? Well, of course, the question back to me in my heart is, why do I expect people to get saved and start acting like me instead of acting like Jesus? Why do I do that? Why do I think that if you receive the Holy Spirit, you're going to start following Jesus in the manner that I follow Jesus rather than thinking the Spirit will conform you to the image of Christ, which he said was his mission? Why am I always looking for you to look like me? It's the same battle in my heart, isn't it? Don't we do this all the time? How could Peter fail so miserably, we ask? Man, after three years following Jesus himself, Jesus looking right into your eyes, teaching you the Gospel. You saw Him raised from the dead. You saw Him transfigured on a mountain with Moses and Elijah. You wanted to build a tent and stay there. Peter, how at this point, after all the miracles that you witnessed, how could you still fail so miserably? More miserably than I have betrayed the Gospel on a daily basis? on a daily basis, living in a way that proclaims I don't believe what I believe in my heart. How could I feel so miserably? You see, everybody on the wrong side of this history is not some kind of, whoa, how could that happen? Man, let's, it's like we're studying Nazi Germany. How could they let this happen? No. What we're studying here is human beings, human beings who've received the gospel and yet are struggling to live in light of the gospel. Sound familiar? Sounds very familiar, right? No, you guys are good. Actually, I'm Paul in the story. None of us are Paul in the story, Right? None of us are Paul here. We love to do this. We love to read the, ba- the Bible and associate ourselves with the hero. Whatever passage we're in. Like like Paul's there telling Peter, how can, how can you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile? And we're standing next to Paul. Tell him, Paul. Yeah! How could you do that, Peter? Or really, we're sitting over there next to Peter at the Jew table. Oh, jeez, how could I do this? We're not the heroes. We're the people who need the grace. We're the people who are failing, who are doing unthinkable things, betraying the gospel, betraying the one who called us. It's being a human being struggling to live in light of the gospel that we believe. We believe it, and yet we're conflicted. I'm confident that the Holy Spirit's desire for us this morning, is to not sit in judgment and ridicule their lack of faith and their lack of understanding of the gospel. Rather, I sincerely believe it's the Spirit's desire that we would study the conflict, examine the heresy, pay close attention to Peter's insecurity, heed Paul's warnings, dig deeply into our own hearts to see how we might more deeply root ourselves in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ because we need to do it on a daily basis. On a daily basis as we struggle to follow the truth of the gospel that we believe. So now in verses 5 through 10 we have Paul setting the Galatian believers up for his major point, his his kind of crescendo in this passage where it reaches the conflict with Peter verses 5 through 10. So here he is in Jerusalem, with Barnabas, with Titus, who he brought along with him. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of of the gospel might be preserved for you, which was his aim always, to preach and proclaim the gospel and to preserve its integrity and its purity for those who had believed it. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. They added nothing to me, he says. So Peter, James, John, the pillars of the church, these, those apostles who had known Jesus personally and been taught by him and who were leaders in the Jerusalem church, the kind of gatekeepers of all the Christian theology, he went and consulted with them about the gospel he had been co- proclaiming to the Gentiles. And he's, what he's saying is, they didn't add or take away anything from my gospel. I... I became confident in that moment that we agreed on what the gospel was. They added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles, and when James and Cephas, that is Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. I've never said the word circumcised so many times in one minute. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do So here's this meeting with the apostles where everyone agrees and they're all in unity about what the gospel is. What are we to be proclaiming? What did Christ die for? Who is Jesus? Who is he for us? And who are we when we believe in him? They agreed on all of these things. So he describes this trip that he made to Jerusalem 14 years after his first visit, which is probably referring to Acts 11 verses 27 through 30, he brought along Barnabas, a Jewish Christian, and Titus, an uncircumcised Greek Christian, and he brought along Titus for a very specific purpose. This meeting where he's making sure we're all preaching the same gospel. You remember he said uh, to make sure that I wasn't running in vain or had run in vain. Paul doesn't actually imagine that he's been preaching the wrong gospel. He wants to make sure that there's unity in the church about what the gospel is so that we don't have a divided church preaching two different gospels. He, he would have considered that a monumental failure if two different gospels Are being preached, one by grace through faith, not by works, so that no one should boast, and one by grace through faith with some of your works, so that you sort of boast. He wanted to make sure there weren't two different gospels being preached, but one unified voice of the church proclaiming a gospel of salvation by grace through faith, not by works, so that no one would boast. He wanted to lay the gospel message before the Jerusalem apostles with a Gentile right by his side. Titus, uncircumcised Greek. I don't know how, I don't know if Paul was just like, by the way, he's uncircumcised. Okay, meeting continues. I don't know how everyone was aware how he meant for this to be some sort of, I don't know. Let's keep reading. right by his side to see if their version of the gospel would require Titus to be circumcised as a convert to Judaism in order to be a real, legitimate Christian. That's what Paul wanted to know. Not that he was dangling Titus out there. But he wanted to see, will they balk at, will they stumble over a Greek uncircumcised Christian standing here in this meeting? He goes on to recount in verse 6 how he, Peter, James, John, all agreed on the truth of the gospel. They added nothing to me. That was a momentous meeting in church history. You should be really thankful that that meeting happened because the purity of the gospel was preserved through that meeting. No division among the apostles concerning the truth of the gospel by grace through faith in Christ for all who believe, both Jew and Gentile. He even makes a point of saying that they were all in agreement about their desire to help the poor wherever they went about preaching the gospel and making disciples. Even more was accomplished in this meeting than Paul had hoped for. Because he said, that was my heart, that was my desire, the very thing I wanted to do anyway. Just as Jesus did, always going to the marginalized, the weak, proclaiming the gospel to them. Clear, undeniable scriptural example of the heart of the apostles to follow in the footsteps of Jesus by ministering to those in greatest need. So I imagine Paul left that meeting absolutely rejoicing. Don't you imagine? Rejoicing that the purity of the gospel had been preserved. I know we're all preaching the same gospel, proclaiming the same Christ, and we even have this heart, this unity in us to go to the weak, the marginalized the poor with the gospel and care for them. Paul must have really been rejoicing. I also imagine that no one in that meeting was more nervous than Titus. I don't think anyone there was more nervous than Titus. I'm going to leave it there. Although kind of in my mind, I'm like, Paul, Paul, look me in the eyes. Right in the eyes. Are you sure these guys are cool? Are you sure? The whole "don't circumcise Greeks" thing. You're okay. Let's do this. All right. So Titus left rejoicing too, because there was total unity among the apostles about this whole story. So this this entire history Paul gives, verses five through ten, setting us up for verses eleven through fourteen. So just by way of reminder, let's read that again quickly: verses eleven through fourteen. But when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, not in Jerusalem, but Peter made a trip up to Antioch where Paul was uh, living, where he was ministering at the time, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, that is, came from Jerusalem, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself fearing the circumcision party, that is, those Jewish Christians who said, once a Gentile converts to Christianity, they should be circumcised, they should be held accountable for living like a Jew. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, that is, he's not obeying all these Jewish traditions and customs and ceremonial laws, if you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? That is, how can you say to a Gentile, if you're going to eat with me, you've got to eat like a Jew? If you're going to worship with me, you've got to worship like a Jew? How, when you've been living like a Gentile, can you place this Jewish burden on them? This is Paul's question. He also at least said, verse 15 to Peter, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. It's unclear if verse 17 on goes on just talking to the Galatians, or or was that a quote from Paul to Peter. But in any case, this morning, what we're trying to focus on is this confrontation between Paul and Peter. What was the basis of it? In Paul's words, Peter was living like a Gentile, not like a Jew. And that that was a good thing. It was a good thing. He's not rebuking him yet. You live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, but then the rebuke comes later. Then how can you place this burden on them? Peter had been embracing not only his own freedom, but also the freedom of the Gentile believers. He had been fully, completely, publicly embracing the freedom that Christ had purchased for him For the Jews, for the Gentiles, he was walking in true, joyful freedom. By eating with Gentiles, Peter was obedient to the vision God had given him in Acts chapter 10. Take, kill, eat, associate with Gentiles. Welcome them. Go after them. Preach to them. Call them family. He had been obedient to that vision in Acts 10 preaching a pure gospel by not putting any burden on them to become like Jews in order to have confidence that they belong to Christ completely. In other words, it really does not depend on your righteousness. Not a shred of your righteousness for you to be saved. Peter was proclaiming this openly to the Gentiles by eating with them. I know it may not mean that to us now. We may struggle to understand the significance of Peter, a Jewish apostle, coming and sitting down at a table and eating pork with a Gentile. But in their day, it was preaching the gospel. It was preaching the gospel. A radical kind of gospel. But when some Jews came in and started preaching that it was more spiritual more Christian, more pleasing to God to live like a Jew, Peter's fear of man was awakened and he withdrew from the Gentiles. He acted hypocritically. His example as an apostle caused even Barnabas, who's mentioned in the scriptures as an apostle, even Barnabas to be led astray and fall into this trap of legalism, of self-righteousness, of distorting the gospel. Now, again, it's important to note from Acts how this story unfolded completely. Okay? Uh, spoiler alert. In Acts chapter 15, we see that Peter went back to Jerusalem after this confrontation. He, he went back with Paul, with Barnabas, and he, right before, in a council meeting with all of the other apostles and leaders, in Jerusalem, he defended the purity of the gospel that it, it is by grace of the Lord Jesus that both Jews and Gentiles will be saved, not through obedience to the law. Peter went back to Jerusalem and he defended the purity of the gospel. He didn't continue in this hypocrisy. He repented and he preached what was true. So the purity of the gospel was preserved, which we're thankful for. Legalism was condemned which we're thankful for. Grace won the day. Christ was exalted as our only hope of salvation. Not Christ plus. Not Christ as long as you. But Christ alone was exalted as our only hope of salvation, that when we trust in Him, what He accomplished through His life, death, resurrection, ascension, intercession for us, giving His Holy Spirit to those who would trust in Him, that is only through this that we're saved, not by adding our good works to make ourselves extra good for God. Paul was able to affirm to the Galatian believers that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, not the gospel plus their own good deeds or religiosity. But if there is one question I'm left with at the end of this very good story, this story with a great ending that Peter repented and the purity of the gospel preserved, the question at the end of this story of gospel versus legalism The righteousness of Christ alone versus the righteousness of Christ plus my own. Here's the question. Why was Peter afraid of the circumcision party? Why? I I don't know if as we read this history from Paul, I don't know if that stood out to you. Why was he afraid? Why? Why? among all the believers, in all the church, in all the world, wouldn't it be Peter? Now 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, mass salvation, visions, angelic deliverance from prison, powerful miracle after miracle witnessed by his own eyes, wouldn't it be Peter? Of all people who would be free from the fear of man, wouldn't it be Peter? Here's the super deep theological answer to that that question. Nope. No, it, it wouldn't be Peter. Any more than it would be me, or it would be you. No matter what we've experienced with the Lord, no matter what we've been taught, we are still capable in our flesh to become afraid of people. The human heart, no matter how deeply it is submerged in life-changing, light-giving grace from Christ, can still find reasons to fear. Do you ever find yourself doing that? Almost looking for something to be afraid of? Almost looking for something to be worried about? Like in the moment of total freedom and joy and satisfaction in Christ, you almost get nervous, like waiting for something to happen. Oh no, if it's good, that means something bad's gonna happen. We can find reasons to fear. And now my real goal is not to stop there at that point just asking that question, but to ask a deeper, more underlying question. And what I'm trying to do here, just to be completely forthcoming and open with you, I'm not trying to pull any punches or, or trick you into all of a sudden going, ah, wow, revelation. Let me just spoil it for you. What I'm trying to do here is get us all to be sitting before the Lord as teachable disciples. Tender-hearted, receptive, humble, aware of our own weakness, our own frailty, our own ability to fear. So my goal here is to ask an even more underlying question If Peter was afraid of these legalists from Jerusalem, what was it that he feared they would do to him? He was afraid of them, but what was it that he was afraid they would do to him? How could they hurt him? Were they going to tell on him? Were they going to report him to the apostles? He's Peter. Like he's the apostle. It would be like the principal being afraid of getting in trouble. Who are they going to tell? Right? Let me tell you why he feared them. He feared them for the same reason any of us fears anyone. He feared that they would judge him. That they would judge him. That they would make decisions about him. That's what he feared. Decisions he was afraid of. Decisions he was afraid would have consequences that would hurt him. I don't believe in this moment that Peter changed his mind about the gospel. I I just don't accept that. I, I would never agree that Peter was sitting at a table full of Jews, watching Gentiles outside, wishing they could come in, and he was going, no, sorry, the Lord changed his mind. Turns out I was wrong. That whole vision I had about you was wrong. I just I don't accept that Paul changed his mind about the gospel. I don't believe for a moment Peter decided his Jesus would only accept him if he lived like a Jew. I don't believe that. Rather, once again, Peter is perhaps the biblical figure I most closely identify with, not because of his heroics, but because of the evident conflict in his soul to fully embrace the things he knew in his heart. To entrust himself entirely to the gospel message that he so boldly proclaimed. To believe in every corner, every crevice without exception, the gospel proclaimed by Christ, no matter what no matter how risky, no matter how scary, no matter what anyone would think, to just cling to Christ. He was so conflicted at times. And in that way, I feel so much like Peter. Uh, Again, maybe I'm alone in the room, but I don't think so. I don't think so. I think we all, if we're being really honest, would say we identify with Peter here more than Paul. Although we have our Paul moments where, by God's grace, we recognize a trap and we call it out and we don't fall in. Praise the Lord! But many, many times in my own heart I feel so divided and I know that I'm sitting in a trap of my own fear of judgment. The Holy Spirit had awakened Peter's heart to the truth of the gospel. He knew Jesus loved him. He knew Jesus died for him. He knew he was free from attempting to gain salvation through his own righteousness. He knew it was for freedom that Christ had set him free, free to take confidence in what Christ had done to cleanse him of sin, to make him clean before a holy God. He had heard with his own ears as Jesus taught, don't fear men who can only kill the body and after that can do nothing. Peter was there for that. But in a moment, are you with me here? In a moment, with eyes watching, a test of his faith in the fullness, the depth, the comprehensiveness, the absoluteness of what Christ had done and who Christ was for him. In a moment, he wavered. He wavered. Why is it that when I think I've done well, me, if I can just lay my heart open before you, when I think I've done well, when I've prayed, when I've read my Bible, when I've blessed someone when I've made the best use of an opportunity seized a moment to preach the gospel to an unbeliever or to encourage some brother or some sister when I feel that I've done well I find it easier to approach God in prayer why is that? but when I've sinned when I know I've failed when I've squandered an opportunity when I've bailed when I've wavered Then I find it harder to approach God in prayer. Why is that? I want to invite you to just feel my failure. You can use me. Feel my wavering. Feel my division. Am I not like Peter? Struggling in a moment to embrace the pure gospel that the Spirit has revealed to me. The pure, whole gospel. I think every time we sin, I think every time we lose faith, what's really happening is that we are divided in what we truly believe. In a moment, in a moment, that, that we know the gospel is true, but if I go all in on the whole gospel, that's, that could be scary. I could end up being this kind of person. I could end up suffering in this kind of way. I could lose these kinds of friends, these kinds of relationships. I could suffer. And most of all, the thing I think we fear is that we will suffer judgment. Judgment. People making decisions about us that we are afraid will hurt us if we go all in on the whole gospel. Because isn't it true that if Jesus died for you and in his death, he made a payment for your penalty, that the wrath of God that was hanging over you, a sinner, a child of wrath, following the course of the world, following Satan and his desires, enslaved to sin, that as God's wrath hung over you, Jesus hung on a cross and absorbed all of that wrath for you so that you would be free from the fear of judgment and wrath and now be awakened to life in Christ. That you would be truly made alive before God, cleansed before God, accepted, purified before a holy God. That you would approach His throne with boldness, having been cleansed by the blood of Christ. That if you can approach a holy God who is angry at sin and who will pour out wrath on those who are sinful before Him, if you can with confidence approach God How is it that you could be afraid to approach a person? Isn't it a valid question? Isn't God much more intimidating than a person? But if God in Christ has absolutely loved us poured out grace and mercy on us, accepted us, welcomed us, holds us close to Himself and is faithful to us to give us a new identity no longer identified by sin, but now identified by the righteousness of Christ given to us as a gift, holy and loved by God. If God has done all of this, then in a moment where we're afraid of a person, afraid of judgment, afraid to embrace the gospel for ourselves, isn't it that we're struggling to believe that truth completely? That God really has done all these things. We have a tendency to minimize the gospel in order to protect ourselves from possible consequences. Because if the gospel is true and I really believe it, What in the world would I be afraid of? As Jesus said, what's the worst they can do? Kill you? That's the worst they could do. He says, if God instead can kill both your body and cast your soul into hell, it's only Him you should fear. And yet the one who can actually hurt us is the one most wholeheartedly and faithfully devoted to never harming us. What kind of confidence does that give us? Peter forgot his confidence. He just forgot the gospel. He was afraid of people and he forgot the gospel. He allowed his belief in the gospel to be divided, situational. When no one's watching, whole gospel. When someone's watching and judging, well, I don't want to go overboard. I think, like Peter, it's my struggle to be an honest disciple of Christ at all times, completely accepting the truth of the gospel for myself and for others. And that's why I stumble. That's why I fail. That's why I fear judgment. And this is why it was so massively important and urgent for Paul that the purity of the gospel be preserved. That Peter, who was sinning and betraying the gospel publicly, would be called out publicly for the sake of all those who were watching. So that the purity of the gospel would be publicly preserved. And everyone, Jew or Gentile, would know for certain that there is unity in the church. That it's not through our good works that we're saved. It is absolutely, completely by the good work done by Jesus and only our faith in him that saves us. If that's true, we are basically invincible. Basically invincible. If his righteousness couldn't earn him good standing with God, then neither could Peter's sin separate him from God. God was never counting on him or any one of us to be good enough. Never. It was always by grace through faith. And this conflict in church history is sitting there on the pages of your Bible to just remind you always, remind you, that every one of us can forget Every one of us can fail. Every one of us can become divided in our hearts and we need to rally around each other always and say, whoa, whoa, remember, Christ died for you. Christ was raised for you. Christ reigns on high for you. Christ will return for you. You are absolutely, completely loved and embraced by the Father because of Christ, not because of you. Be free, brother. Be free, sister. We need this from each other. This kind of holy conflict. It's good for the church. It's a great reminder for us in order to continue preserving the purity of the gospel for ourselves and for all those that we will proclaim it to so that they know they're welcomed into a family where Christ is all. Where Christ is sufficient, Christ is what we need, not our own goodness. Let's pray about it. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.